Good evening, everyone. Glad to be here tonight. Thank you all for being here. <laughs> It'd be kind of boring talking to empty pews, so I really appreciate you being here. Um, well, I enjoy that singing. I really like that last song, especially. Um, so we are in Colossians, continuing in Colossians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn there now. And last week, we finished up with all the negatives that Paul was calling on the Christians in Colossae to rid themselves of, those things that Christians are to put off as not benefiting Christian holiness. Um, and since Christians are in the process of being renewed uh, after the image of their Creator, these ungodly practices are to be mortified in our daily lives. We have put off the old self put on the new self. We are a new creation in Christ. And it seems that the church in Colossae was um, struggling in these areas of sin, no different from us. Uh, Paul's rightly calling them to turn from those sins um, by way of reminder. He reminded them of a lot of things that we've seen in the first couple of chapters already. A reminder of who Christ is, um, what Christ has done, who they used to be before Christ, who they are now in Christ, and how they were changed by Christ. Uh, all of these things applying just as much to them as to us today. And tonight we'll look at um, what to do after these sinful practices that he mentions uh, early on in chapter 3. After those have been put off, after we've ridded our Ridded? Is that a word? Ridded. That doesn't sound right. Rid. After we've rid ourselves uh, of those sinful practices that we're to be putting off, what next? What do we, what do, we do after that? Um, those have to be replaced. Those ungodly practices have to be replaced with godly practices. Uh, those things that are benefiting uh, and, and uh, befitting of Christians and the life of Christians. Um, and so let's read what those are tonight, and then we'll have a word of prayer to open up. So Colossians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 12, and I'm going to attempt to go through verse 17 tonight. So let's look at verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Yes, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this night. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God, that we've 
we get to this point where we are instructed on what we are to put on as Christians, what character traits we are to put on in our lives, the way that we are supposed to live godly. And Father, we thank you that you strengthen us to do so. We thank you that you provide everything we need. And we thank you, Lord, for how you have loved us so greatly through the death of your Son on our behalf. We are eternally grateful. We praise you. We give you all glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So now we see, as I said, that Paul comes to this point where he gives the positive action to be taken by the Christian. He's talked about what not to do or how not to be. He's talked about what to put off or to get rid of, and now he gets to the putting on. He gets to replacement practices that are godly in nature. But before we get to those things, however, I want us to notice first Paul's reason why we should do all that he's saying to do here, and that includes the things that we were supposed to put off, and now includes the things that we're supposed to put on, but he gives a reason. His reason really is short and simple and informative. In verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones. Okay, the reason he gives is that Christians are God's chosen ones. Now, we live in a culture where Anytime a person is chosen for something, it's because of some reason. You know, they, they deserve it. They've merited being chosen, and the one doing the choosing has made the wise choice between them and someone else less deserving. Okay, maybe it's for a job, um, maybe for a political office, maybe it's on a sports team or on a sports field maybe a movie role, uh, you name it. And it brings up a question. I was thinking about it. Can you think of a single situation or circumstance where someone with the authority chooses the worst person? I couldn't think of one. I don't know if you guys can think of one where someone with the authority and has to make a choice purposely chooses the worst option. <laughs> What's that? Whoever chose Putin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what was that? Oh, because they're family. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that gets to what we're going to get to. But in our, in sort of the earthly sense, we, can't, we don't do it that way. We don't think of it that way. No one does that. And I think if we're honest, we know that this way of doing things, um, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but this way of doing things creates pride in people. And, I'm, and when I say not that it's wrong, I mean not that it's wrong for an employer to choose the most qualified person or the best option. That's not wrong. Um, but the way that we do things um, creates pride in people. Whether they verbalize that pride or not, okay, maybe someone's not an outwardly prideful person, but they could be inwardly prideful. Um, and the way we do it, it, it brings that about. They have something to boast about because 
by their merit, they were chosen for whatever it is, whatever that thing is. Uh, they were chosen as the best option because of their qualifications. Right? The source of boasting is in the one chosen. That's how we do things. But this is not the case in God's economy. In terms of eternal salvation, biblically speaking, the fact that people are chosen by God to be saved is never a source of pride or boasting in the one chosen. Right? We, we are the ones chosen. It's never a source of pride or boasting. That's totally opposite of what we know um, here on the earth. Um, so that's not why Paul brings this up. And he, he doesn't say what he said there, that, that they are uh, God's chosen ones so that they can be prideful. Okay, um, that's, that's not why he brings this up. God's purpose in saving sinners is not so that they can boast in themselves. Otherwise, salvation would, would actually be by works. If we could boast in ourselves in some way, then salvation would actually be by works, which we know it isn't. And so, since salvation is not based on our own merit, the boast or boasting has to be directed at something else or someone else. Um, and that's what Paul is after, that there is something he wants the people to consider regarding the fact that they are chosen by God. And bottom line is, uh, the Colossian Christians and, uh, and you and me, we are not Christians because we ever chose God. We are uh, a Christian because he chose us. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian because he chose you. And yes, at one point in life, you responded in repentance and faith and have been saved by God as has every believer in history. That's how it happens. But that salvation did not originate with you. First John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. And this truth is found all throughout the Bible, and we shouldn't discount it. If for nothing else, that Paul mentions it here, he specifically sticks it in there. Um, this truth, however, doesn't do away with man's responsibility to repent and believe. Right? We were called to do that in the Scripture. But we need to know that God chose to do a work. If you are a Christian, he chose to do a work in your life, a work of salvation. And he knew it before you were even born. You know, Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around. Paul mentions this here for a reason. Right? He, he could have just said, since you are a Christian, put on these godly traits. But he, he didn't. He wants to remind Christians they were specifically chosen by God for salvation. And he's not just using extra words in a sentence. Right? He's not, this isn't a filler. He has a reason for saying it. There's something we need to know in this discourse about true Christianity. So why? Why would Paul want the church to know that they are Christians because God chose them? Why is that meaningful in any way? What makes it meaningful to us as Christians? It's an open question. It's meaningful because we didn't choose him? Okay. What else? Other thoughts on that? I agree with that. 
okay? Because the alternative is our, the place we were already at, which is condemnation. Right, yeah. For eternity in hell, if he didn't, right, right. Yeah, I think that those reasons get to the heart of it. <clears throat> you could probably add, add to that other truths, but it's meaningful because if we think of it as Christians and think of our former life as unbelievers, it's meaningful because of who I was when he chose me. Um, who was I? I was his bitter, hateful enemy. I didn't deserve to be chosen. Uh, if I was his friend or the best player on the court, then of course he chose me, right? I, I would deserve it. That's how we do things. That's how we view things. But that's not how it was. I wasn't. I wasn't. I was the worst player. If we're talking sports, I was the worst player. I was his enemy, a, a child of the devil, in fact. The scripture tells us that's what we were. I should, actually, all of us as Christians, we should forever have a sort of confused look on our face, right? a shocked expression that he chose us, right, in light of who we were. Not puffed up, not a, not a big head over it, and not a look of, well, what else do you expect? Of course he chose me. <laughs> right, that's, that's not how it should be. That's not the look we should have on our face. So that, that we are chosen by God, not only does Paul mention that here, but this is a biblical fact. It is, we should embrace it as truth because it is. And it is, it is a most precious truth that God chose us. Why? Because without God's choosing you, you would never have responded to him in saving faith. He, he did it, not us. Don't, and don't fight it. Embrace it. Embrace that work of God. The Bible makes this abundantly clear. In John 15, 16, it says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Some of the Gentiles embraced this when the gospel came to them. At one time, the gospel hadn't come to them, and then all of a sudden, it did. In Acts 13, 48, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? Well, we don't know the number, but Luke made it clear that this was, it was just as many as God had appointed to believe. As if God had something to say in the matter, right? Well, he does. He does. Look with me at John 6. We turn over to John chapter 6. It's a long chapter. And we're going to start in verse 63 of John chapter 6. Again, this is Jesus talking, 63. 
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Well, that's a reference to what Jesus had said several verses earlier. In John 6, he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He said it. No one can come unless, unless the Father draws him. So thank you, God, right? Thank you, God, for your intervention in my life, right? That should be our our constant thankful attitude. And that's Paul's reason for putting that in there. That's, he wants them to think about that. It is a moment of remembrance of the kindest thing God had ever done for anyone. And therefore, the call to respond that follows makes sense to the Christian. So there's an absolute reason why Paul put that in there. It's not, again, not just extra words. It's not just filler. We shouldn't skip over it. He wants he wanted them, he wants us to know that we are chosen by God. And so then there's a response to that. And it makes sense now as Christians. Why wouldn't I get rid of sinfulness and replace it with godliness? For look what the Lord God did for me. Right? If it was, look what I did, well, I would be very likely to continue sinning without gratitude toward God who saves, right? You see the difference? So that's why he puts that in there. So we are chosen by God. And more than that, even, he goes on, says, we are holy and beloved. Again, this is not our pre-chosen condition, right? In other words, Paul is not saying we were chosen because we were holy. We were chosen because we were beloved by God and made holy by his very choosing and electing and saving. Those words are, can be interchangeable there. That we are beloved of God, it means that we are, as one commentator put it, the objects of his special love. So Christians, get that straight. That's what Paul's getting at. Paul is telling them to know that they were chosen by God despite who they were, and he made them holy. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's Titus 3.5, if you wanted to write that one down. Titus 3.5. Now, since that is who you are, since that is what God has made you to be according to his mercy, Put on the following qualities. That's what Paul is getting at because of those things. Put on these following qualities. He says, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I'm not going to go too much into what each of those means because I think we all have a basic understanding of what those qualities are. But I will ask, though, um, 
What does meekness mean in this context? Other translations have it as gentleness. What does that mean, do you think? How do we put that on? Okay, so he he held that. Meekness is not weakness, right? Okay. Um, I don't know that it would be the opposite of prideful, but um, it's certainly, I think that's a pretty good description there. There's, the sense is that um, though you could do or be something, you purposefully choose not to uh, for, for a reason. And in that, in that sense, um, in this sense, it's in terms of our relations with other people. Uh, yeah. Sure, yeah. Meekness is not attainable unless the Holy Spirit gives it. I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yes, it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is for sure. Um, I think it's similar to humility. Yeah, I don't think it's the same. Um, Well, again, this... Some translations have it, I think it's almost half and half translations. Some have it meekness, some have it gentleness. So gentleness might be a better way for you to understand it, but maybe this will help. In this context, one commentator said, um, which I found helpful, he uses the word gentle. The gentle person knows he is a sinner among sinners and is willing to suffer the burdens, uh, uh, the burdens others' sin may impose on him. So in terms of our life, our Christian life and being gentle or meek, that's the idea there, um, that there's a remembrance there of who we are. And I think we can apply this to almost all of these things that we have here tonight, that all of these need to include a remembrance of who we are in Christ, where we came from, so that as we deal with other people, we are able to see them sort of through that lens. Um, Oh, strength under control, okay. Right. Okay, so you said you want to kind of understand where people are at. Well, being a former enemy of God in my old life, can I understand where, other, where unbelievers are coming from? Yeah. And that's the point, right? It's not... Look at that guy. What's his problem? It's, I know what his problem is because I was there and, and God saved me. And so it helps my response to them be more compassionate. And that's one of these things here. Um, but like I said, so there's a remembrance that's attached to this. Um, and it's not, something that's not is, it's, it's not a tolerance of sin, right? We don't, say sin isn't sin or, or call sin out, um, but it is a, a constant recognition that um, they need me to help them as I received help from someone else. 
Uh, it's not a, I'm not better than them or anything like that. Well, what do you mean by stand up for yourself? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we can, I mean, you're describing living the Christian life in front of them, right? Even though they're doing the total opposite. But, yeah. So you're, as Christians, we are putting off the anger and the wrath and the malice, the obscene talk, the sexual immorality, uh, and we're putting on the replacements. And notice that these are these ones that we read here are all qualities that are used in relation to other people. Um, these have a direct connection to how we are to treat or to be toward others. So the next question then is, beyond the fact that God commands us to exhibit these qualities, why should we put them on? Why should we clothe ourselves with compassionate hearts and all the rest? And that, so you can't just say, because God said Was that? We'd be hypocrites, okay? So, so you're saying we, we we should do them out of thankfulness and gratitude? Right, yeah, so it's not just because he commanded. What you're describing is, is a response to what he's done for me, right? Okay? Yeah, yeah, and I, I think as we look at the text here too, probably the main reason we can see for doing this beyond just that it's commanded, uh, which is true, but I think we'll see here that unless we do what Paul is saying that we should do here, we will not be able to accomplish the next commands here. Without putting these on, we won't be able to do what we're told here, which as we look forward, are there's two more things that I want to look at here, which is to bear with one another and to forgive one another. Okay, there's a connection here. Now, verse 13, uh, 13 and 14. Bearing with one another, <clears throat> and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So, bearing with and forgiving others is directly tied to the character qualities that we're told to put on. Uh, if I have no compassion in my heart for sinners, especially um, Christians who, who sin, if I have no kindness or patience or humility or desire to um, submit myself to them, as the scripture says, meaning to set aside my desires and to see them as more important than myself, how am I ever going to bear with them when they sin against me or do stupid things or even maybe even aggressively come after me? And without putting on those godly characteristics that Paul says to put on, 
every day, we should be doing that, then we will we'll crumble in the face of our fleshly ambitions, our fleshly responses to what others do or say to us. Um, so to bear with someone in this context is to, to take it without getting revenge. Uh, it's like Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4.12, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. That's kind of what he's describing here, this, this bearing with. The idea is to keep holding out, even in the face of persecution and all kinds of hardships at the hands of others. And then he adds forgiveness into the mix. We are to forgive each other, he says, as the Lord has forgiven you, which should kind of scare us. He emphasizes it by, by the command that we must do so. So the question is how then? How, not how do we do it, but how did the Lord forgive us? That's what we have to ask ourselves here. How did the Lord forgive us? If Paul says we must forgive that same way, should we not know how he forgave us? So what do you think? How did he forgive us? He what? I couldn't hear what you said. You what? Oh, you're wrong. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Certainly, the Word of God tells us we are wrong in many, many ways. But first and foremost, that we are sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins. We need a Savior. Christ is our Savior. He forgives sins. Um, so, I mean, it kind of starts where with, with what you're talking about. Okay. He forgave us out of love. Okay, so that's why we should do it. Okay. Did he, prior to forgiving us, did he wait for us to get to a certain level of goodness? <laughs> it's, it's such an obvious question, right? <laughs> right. That, that's how he showed his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. And I think if we could break it down to kind of simply, we could say, how did he forgive us? He chose to. He chose to forgive us. We didn't, we didn't make him feel like forgiving us. Um, he wasn't obligated to forgive us. He chose to, like Rosie said, while we're his enemies. So then... When we think about that, when we think about ourselves, our, our old life, and how Christ forgave us, and now we are new in Christ, and we think about how we are chosen in God, uh, that, that should make me ask that question, how did Jesus forgive me? And then I should be reflecting on my own life and asking, how good am I at forgiving others? So that's the question, how good are how good are forgiven Christians at forgiving others? Sometimes not so good. Quite often not so good. But God says we must. 
right? You wrote it here. We, we must. And I've, I've said this before, and I have to say it to myself as well. Now, we, don't, we don't have the right to not forgive anyone anything. We just don't. Anything. And, I mean, in a, given a big enough crowd of people, and maybe even in this group, you're, you could be thinking of someone right now that, that you're, you would agree with that statement, but then you'd say, yeah, but this person, you know, what they did is so bad. But we can't, we can't do that. We don't have the right to do that. Can, can you think of, I guess that makes me, I want to ask that question also, can you think of something we have the right to not forgive someone of? Right? Right. He tells us that. Right. Yeah. Well, it goes back to what he says here. You must. It. That's how, right. Right, they're not. Yeah, we must. And so it's a question I think we should often ask ourselves. As we, as we sort of examine our own lives and think and ask, is there someone that I'm not forgiving? Maybe I'm not, you know, outright telling people, man, I'm never going to forgive that guy. But maybe you're sort of not forgiving and you don't realize it. You're holding bitterness and you don't really realize it. But, but the scripture says that we must and we need help with this, don't we? We need help. And it goes back to what Dan said earlier that this, these things are all empowered by the Holy Spirit. We, we cannot do this without God's help. Um, and we can help one another. That's what we're to do as the body of Christ. We're to help one another with these things by not allowing each other to live in unforgiveness. Maybe you've had someone in your life who you've heard say, I could never forgive that person for this or that. And maybe you say nothing. But what we should be doing is saying, whoa, let's, let's talk about that. And there's this passage and other passages that you could take them to and say, you're not allowed to think like that. You're not allowed to say that or live like that. Because what are we saying? If we're saying that I'm not going to forgive that person for something, what am I forgetting? What's that? Yeah. I am literally forgetting how God forgave me. And, and I am worse than that person. What I, how I have treated God is a million times worse than how that, whatever that person could have done to me. Uh, and we just, we don't understand that sometimes. We forget that. Um, and it takes humility. It takes kindness. It takes compassion um, to, to live with people in that way. So we can and we should call each other out when we hear people say things like that. Now, maybe it's fresh. Maybe they have been sinned against and it's really fresh, right? And so we want to be gentle um, you want to listen, but at some point we, we call them to forgiveness because that's what the scripture says. Um, 
we need to call each other to do that. So we, we, we do have the Holy Spirit who empowers that in us. We have each other to remind each other of God's command on this too. We'll, we'll not be able to do, like I said, any of this in our own strength. We need the Spirit of God and each other. Um, and also need to know that God has commanded it uh, because we don't want to do it and because we can't do it. If we, were, if we could easily do this and we always did this, he wouldn't have to command it. But he commands it because we don't. It's, it's hard. Uh, and this gets to Paul's command in verse 14. He said a lot about what to do and why, and now he sums up the way we can put all these things on, the way we can meld them all together and put them into practice in the Christian life. Uh, and so according to verse 14, how does all this get packaged together and motivate the Christian to godly living? With love. Right? By putting on love. Again, we're, the idea of putting on. We've, we've taken off those sinful practices. We're putting on these godly practices. And love here is, is held up um, by Paul as vital to being able to accomplish these things. He says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Okay? And that's not a feeling or an emotion. We often think of love that way, right? It's, it's a feeling or an emotion. Um, and it's not conditioned on the performance of another person either. Okay? We quite often either give or withhold love because of a person's performance, how they've treated us or not treated us. Um, and so it's not those things. It's not a feeling or an emotion, and it's not conditioned on the performance of another. Again, think of your own life and how, how Christ forgave you. Uh, it wasn't a feeling, it wasn't an emotion, and it wasn't conditioned on your performance. Thankfully, absolutely. Um, we almost always want to condition our love on another person's performance or treatment of us. But this is a command of God to love despite the other person. Um, the word for love here is agape. And you've probably gone through studies on the different words in the New Testament for love. Um, and again, this is a love of choice. Um, it's a decision to love others who are not lovable or being loving. I don't have the right to not love others, even if they're the worst. I must choose to love them because, because I won't feel like loving them. Well, what does that not mean? It doesn't mean that I'm their best friend, okay, or, or I have to spend all my time with them. That's not what that means. Um, it also doesn't mean that I don't point out sin where sin is present. Sometimes people think, well, it's not loving to point out people's sin. That's actually the opposite. It is loving. As Christians, it's loving for us to point out each other's sin so that we can continue to grow in holiness before God. It is loving for us to point out the sin of unbelievers because unless we point out the sin, they have no reason for a Savior, right? So it is loving to point out sin. Now, we could do it in an unloving way, we should, which we shouldn't, um, so, we need to go now to a familiar passage in 1 Corinthians 13. 
And let's think about it in this context tonight, in the context of what we've been talking about, because that's really the context that it's in, um, 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll look at verses 4 through 8, because this is a lot of times thought of as the marriage passage, but really this is the definition of Christian love, period. This is, this is what this is. 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So, love. That's our, that's our definition of love. It's not just for husbands and wives. It's for one Christian to another. It's for how we, re, uh, how we interact with other people. And Paul says, what he's saying is that when the church does this, when we, when we love the way God defines love, then it binds everything together in perfect harmony. It, it makes all those things that we put on possible. It makes them do what God says they will do. And when you and I choose to love others, we will be kind. We will be compassionate. We will bear with them. And we will forgive them as Christ has forgiven us. Because we'll be doing what Christ did. So we see this, we see at this point uh, an interesting contrast. We see the, the contrast between, between the putting and the letting we get to here in verse 15. Okay, we've been talking about putting on, putting off, putting on, and now we get to letting. Verse 15 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And the idea of ruling here is um, that the peace of Christ would, would lead, would guide would be decisive in our lives, that it would inform us about what's true and what's not true. And not only that, we'll get to the next one, but what we've put on um, and now we can let Christ put on and then submit the outcome of what he's been saying to do, submit the outcome of that to Christ and be thankful to him for the outcome of our obedience in those areas because the outcome will be what God says it is. And what he's saying it is, is there'll be, there's peace in this. And, and Paul says this is what we're called to do, not just as individuals, but as the body of Christ. We're called to this. Um, this is a promise that the results of obedience to, what came, to all these things that came before, the results of obedience to that is that there will be the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. And this, Paul says, is something to be thankful for, and we should do so. So, but 
without this? What rules in our hearts without putting on these godly character traits and loving others? What, what's going to rule in our hearts? Sin? What else? How about some specific sins, maybe? Pride? Judgment? Jealousy? Back to the things we were to put off? Anger? Malice? Wrath? Greed? Yeah, obscene talk? How about anxiety? There's not, if there's not peace, there's anxiety. There's confusion. We don't know why this is happening, why that's happening. How do I respond to it? You could probably go on and on with the list. But the, the fact is that if we're doing what he says we're to do here, we can let the results be what they are. If we're living this with these godly character traits and putting on love, the peace of Christ will rule in our hearts. That's, that's a promise. And also there's another letting, something to let happen. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, I, I talked about letting, right? That we can't just sit next to our Bibles and expect that this will take place, right? I don't just sit by my Bible and have it rule, uh, dwell in me richly, right? That's not how it works. We do have to participate in this. We do have to open our Bibles. Um, that's the implication here. Okay? It's not saying, oh, you don't really have to do anything. Just have your Bible nearby. Um, he's, the implication is that you're doing that. Okay? Uh, the Christian is... The implication is that the Christian is devoted to the Word of God. We are reading the Word of God. We are studying the Word of God. Paul tells Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth. That's, that's the expectation. So we're doing that, therefore, we can let it work. When we're doing that, the Word of God, it works in our lives. And we need to let it, he says, dwell in us richly. Why? Because we're to be using his word for very important purposes within the body of Christ, and he lists some of them out here. He includes teaching and admonishing. Um, and both of those, he says, are with all wisdom. And that is the wisdom from the word dwelling richly within us. That, that wisdom doesn't come from somewhere else. It's from the Word. Also, we're to use the Word in singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that's why we want to, uh, we want to be singing things that are, that are proclaiming the Word of God. We don't want to just sing nothingness or words that rhyme. Uh, I mean, it's okay if words rhyme, but, you know, that's not the standard. The standard is the Word of God. What we sing to each other as Christians needs to be uh, anchored in and founded on the Word of God. And he says, with thankfulness in our hearts toward God. Um, we don't teach or admonish or sing to one another with anything but the Word of God. Right? We don't get somebody's book, somebody else's book, and make a song out of it and sing it to each other. Right? We're, we're singing things that are biblical truths and we're proclaiming those to one another. And most 
most often it's the work of Christ in salvation that we're proclaiming in our songs and how that's transformed our lives. Uh, we try to sing the gospel. Um, and what does it mean to let the word of, uh, letting his word dwell in us richly? What does that mean? How would you describe that? Well, start with dwelling. How does it dwell in us? It lives in us. Okay. Right. Treasure his word in our hearts. Right. Yeah, and I think you kind of hit on the idea there that it's the word is living in us. Yeah. We do have to be reminded of God's word. Therefore, we teach with it, we admonish with it, we sing with it. It's involved in, in everything that we do. If, I, if we're teaching in the church, what are we teaching? We're teaching the Bible. If we're singing, we're singing the Bible. If we're admonishing, if we're using something besides the Bible, we're not doing what's right. I can't admonish somebody with something other than the scriptures. People do it all the time outside the church, but in, within the church, we should be using the Word of God. Um, and again, the idea of, we think of, about the Word of God dwelling in us, and um, just wanted to talk about ruling again. If, if the Word of God was going to dwell in us, if it's going to kind of rule our lives, that is that it would make decisions for us. When I need to know how to treat someone, I go to the Word of God, and it informs me. It's ruling in my life. If um, I need to know who, who should I marry, um, I go to the Word of God to see who I should marry. It won't give me the name of the person, but it'll tell me the, the qualities of the person. First, that they would be a believer. Um, so we are informed by the Word of God. That's how we make decisions um, in our lives as Christians. Dan, did you have a question? Uh huh. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. If you want, if you want rich examples of this, then you read through the Psalms and you see. You see what is written about the Word of God and how. The, how we should view the Word of God, how we should use the Word of God, what the Word of God does in our lives. Um, so, yeah. Verse 17, the last verse. He says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So what does it mean to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? Do I have to say His name every time I say or do something? Is that what it means? Now, what does, that, what does that mean, to, to, that everything I do or say 
would be done or said in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so it would be said or done as a representative. Sure. Okay. What else? As an example. I think we can take this back to the gospel. All right, we're, we're commanded here to do or say things in a godly way now, right, as new, as new creatures in Christ. We are to do, thing, do or say things in a godly way because we can in Christ. We couldn't before, but we can now in Christ. And because I want to bring glory to God by what I do and say. And because it points others to Christ, which gets, gets to your point about being an example. Um, because the gospel of Christ and its transforming power in our lives. As we consider the gospel in all that we do and say, then we're reminded to give thanks to God the Father through Christ. Uh, if, we, if we, as we think about what we're going to do and say, if the gospel comes to our mind, as it relates to our own salvation and what Christ did for us, that will, that will guide what I do and say. If, if what I'm thinking about before I do and say something is how I've been wronged, I'm probably not going to respond right. So, our moving ministry. Right, yeah, and that's the point. Yeah. What we do and say is done as unto the Lord. Right, as if I'm doing or saying it to God. So am I going to, in my initial fleshly response to someone, if I ask myself, would I have done that or said that to God? No, then I probably shouldn't have done it. So, I am, we are, as Christians, chosen by God in salvation, which motivates us to get rid of the sins of anger and wrath and malice towards others and replace them with compassion and kindness and patience and love, which enable me to bear with the failings of others toward me and to forgive others as Christ has forgiven me. So round and round we go. Um, that's, that's the way life is, right? We're going we're gonna to have this ebb and flow and this back and forth, but we continually come back to these reminders. That's why we need to remember that we are chosen. We are God's chosen ones. And what does that mean? Therefore, I will respond the way I should because of what he's done. Um, and we, we go about giving out then what we got from God in, in a measure that we can't even imagine. Um, but
you see how all of this works together. The things that he's saying to, to put off and put on and why, how it works. And in Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Verse 8 says, Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So we, Let's remember that. He lavished on us love and forgiveness, patience, kindness, forgiveness, all those things um, in, in far greater measure than we could ever possibly imagine. And so we, we have no right to not to bear with one another and to be forgiving of one another. Um, these are all really good reasons and reminders to the church to live godly lives by putting off those old sinful practices and putting on these godly practices that Paul, Paul has mentioned here. Um, so let's close in prayer for tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God, for this reminder. Uh, such an important reminder, Lord, that we are your chosen ones. Holy and beloved. All because of you. We thank you for your intervention in our lives. We thank you for calling us, for drawing us. Lord, for saving such wicked sinners. And Lord, may we not treat others in the opposite way. May we treat them as, as we were treated by you. With such kindness and grace and mercy and compassion. Help us, Lord, to be forgiving. I pray as we even go from here tonight, if there is someone in our lives that we realize we are not forgiving, Lord, I pray you would strengthen us to go and do so and not let it linger any longer. And thank you, Lord, that you empower all these things by your Spirit. You are an amazing God, Lord. We are so grateful for your grace and your mercy and your kindness towards us. And thank you, Lord, for the peace of Christ that we can have. Thank you, Lord, for your word that can dwell in us richly, informing every aspect of our lives. And thank you for the body of Christ and how we all benefit from that. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.